I'm surprised that Chris, it's good to see you. I know you from your channel, Meme Analysis, where people come for the memes and stay for God. How are you doing? That's the best, that's probably the, one of the best intros I've ever had. Thank you. <laughs> I stay for the God disc. Stay for the God, oops, stay for the God disc. What is, so your, your name on Instagram is God disc. What does that mean? It's, you know, See, also, you're, you're, you're already a good interviewer. Nobody's asked me that before. Um, I made a movie while I was in high school called God Disc. And it was a, a sci-fi vision of the Holy Roman Emperor Justinian II. And so instead of space Christianity, I made a religion called God Disc. But the name, and that, that ended up being the name of the movie. And... I guess the people that I showed to it, they thought it was so funny um, ridic and ridiculous. I, I became God Disc. The, the name of the movie became associated with me. Probably around 11th grade. It's quite symbolic that, that, that as this joke, you your name actually turns into God Disc. Hmm. It's also a kind of, it's a reference to UFOs. Like, mm. um, Jung talks about, mm. like, you know, the UFO is the god disc, uh, which I also had a big interest in. So it was a, it was a fit, it's a fitting nickname. I'm happy with it. Mm. Yeah, Jung's idea of UFOs, as far as I understand, is that um, they're almost equivalent to God in people's thoughts because they are the highest version of something. They're the archetype. And so you'll often see schizophrenics. Schizophrenics... Uh, have a very specific pattern to their thoughts, so they won't see like they won't see their cup of milk talking to them and telling them generally like how their day was. You know, it's it's the the cup of milk. If they see a pattern in it, it's it's the devil, it's God, it's the aliens communicating with them. It's it's the highest version of something. And this is of course the aeonic progression, the progression from angels and demons to aliens is the progression of the aeons from Pisces to Aquarius, because I what think does that aliens... Mean? So, have you heard the, the song, This is the Dawning of the Age of Aquarius? Yeah. So, every 2,000 years, we progress into a new aeon, a zodiacal age, or what is called a platonic month. So instead of each month being a zodiac sign, every 2,000 years is. And in that period, um, the world is fundamentally changed according to kind of the zodiacal character. So in the age of Pisces, we had a fish god. We had Christ the fisherman and a fisher of men. And before that, we'd had paganism and horned warrior gods for Ares. Um, now we have Aquarius, which is a, a person, a person carrying a pitcher of water. And I think aliens, because Aquarius is far out, it's a far out sign, like spiritually far out, behaviorally far out, um, fairy-like, and aliens are the modern form of this archetype. They are the most suitable form of Aquarius. Hmm. That's a lot to take in. I always thought of aliens as, uh, or aliens and 
angels and jinni from Islamic culture as sort of one and the same thing, like the angel and devil on your shoulder. Um, we said that Muhammad. So I, it's kind of funny because in pre-Islamic culture there was this idea of jinni. So like, um, a, kind of essentially angels with their own hierarchies, and you would everyone would have some jinni that would talk to them and tell them uh, either to do good good or bad things. And Muhammad was said to have only had good jinni talking on his shoulder, which is um, actually now that I think of it, very similar to I'm converting to Judaism right now and there's this idea of the tzaddik. So the, like the most holy person, the most holy version of a person you can get. And the, the tzaddik has once again, no evil inclinations at all from their, their animal soul, their Sahara. Um, but it's interesting that you say that aliens are an evolution from angels. I haven't thought of it like that. It's also, you know, that, concept is the origin of the roman genius the greek daemon genius and genie um, it's all a singular thing that is you know, the will or the guardian angel um, and it, even in judaism you know you have the appearance with solomon because solomon masters the demons and it's a lot more prevalent in islam because there's a continued relationship with the jinn. The jinn are like an active spiritual presence in Islam where they're not as much in Judaism and Christianity. But Solomon, across all of them, does this thing of um, mastering the 72 jinn, or the kings of uh, the jinn, which is how you get modern ceremonial magic with the, the keys of Solomon, uh, you know, Ceremonial magic has its roots in King Solomon. Can you explain that? What are, what are the keys of Solomon? So for each of these 72 demons, there is a name and a seal. And you can call on them. Because Solomon mastered them under God, you can essentially replicate what he did and call on the demons to do various things. The problem is that, you know, most people are not, not nearly as masterful as Solomon and so fall into these tricks. I'd say the difference for the Christians is that there are no good jinn. It's all evil. Um, but it's all dealing with the same energetic materials. So what do you think about... Things like mastering jinn. I mean, for me, there are various layers of reality, you could say. And then there's the atheist layer where I can say, like, mastering jinn is just your... You mastering your unconscious. Like, you mastering the, the devils within you. Um, things like... Potentially, it could, it could be... The atheist version of me could say, like, um, mastering jinn is just, like... Instead of having an addictive personality or still having the addictive personality, but using it towards addiction, towards exercise or your career or something positive instead of like drugs and alcohol or whatever it is. And then there goes, for me, there's other layers that are deeper and let, more fuzzy, not necessarily fuzzy, but more underground and without as much language attached to them that I still deeply believe. So could you, could you explain, I, I don't know if you have something similar, but what is your... How do you process this idea of energies and harnessing demons and things like that? 
so it's funny when you say, you know, mastering your demons, because it's true. But, and this is the Jungian problem, is that it's not just yours, it's our demons. It's demons that exist for everybody. And so they have reality. Because also something that I think is worth considering is that these demonic aspects of human life, you know, the compulsions and the evils and so on, um, of which there are, you know, countless, um, they are things that are taboo. They are things that are hidden. And so they are things that gain immense power over us. You know, when we blackmail, we're not using like, oh, you, you saved a kitten. You know, it's like you, you crushed one to death and you got off to it. Like, it's evil, evil things that people do. And people do do evil things. Mm. It's not just in the movies. Evil is real. And a lot of people do a lot of evil things. And we don't talk about it. And we don't pay attention to it. Because that's how we're able to maintain civilization. But these demons are personifications of these bad things. And if so in a way... Uh, mastering a demon is like mastering collective blackmail all of the dread of the bad things that everybody does if you can master you can have power over and you can understand so yes it's kind of not real like it's not like there's a uh, there's a little monster you know there's not like a i can't grab him but they do materialize at times. You know, there, there is a material aspect at certain times that are very real. Um, like a good example is Napoleon had a little red man who would tell him what to do and how to win at war. And this little red man also appeared before Marie Antoinette is beheaded, before the royal family is beheaded. The little red man visits them in prison. And there are all these sorts of stories throughout history of, you know, spirits coming at important points and actually influencing the outcome for the world. So sometimes these collective energies materialize, but they exist for all of us and we give them a lot of energy through the things that we do and think about. Hmm. The most obvious one that I can think of is Santa Claus. I don't know if you're familiar with Jonathan Pedro. Mm -hmm. He did a video called Santa Claus Israel or something like that. Um, and he talks about, this is the best representation I've heard, is that um, if you go to see Santa Claus with your kid and your kid sits on Santa Claus's lap and then Santa Claus talks about how he got drunk last night and his ex-wife just left him. Like, it's funny. It makes me laugh because it's so not Santa Claus. He's actually breaking the character of Santa Claus. And that means that Santa Claus has an identity that we can all identify very, very clearly. And this person is not only, uh, Santa Claus maybe the real Santa Claus doesn't have a, um, doesn't have a physical embodiment, but he kind of does because every single mall Santa that you see is the physical embodiment of Santa mm -hmm. Claus. He's actually more than a human being. He's, he's an identity that in an energy that we feed into that has thousands of bodies. Like, he's a, a super powerful version of an idea. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I did a, I did a video on Santa Claus a while ago um, about how I, I trace his origin to Odin, at least. Um, and 
that you know Krampus or Belschnickel. There's like an yeah, evil. Talk about there's it. an evil part. Mm. Um, and this is what Christianity does. So what begins as a singular pagan god, which is capable of good and evil actions, is divided by Christianity into a saint and a devil. And there can only be these two. There is an intolerance for the ambiguous pagan figure, the singular thing, which is often the real thing, in my opinion. But it becomes schizophrenic, and these energies are schizophrenized. Now, I think they ultimately find their way back into one thing, often. Um, but, you know, it's even apparent in Islam, where... All of the gods at Mecca, all of the gods at the shrine are demonized and become the jinn. They're the same thing, you know? They're the same, they have the same names, they're doing the same things, they just now have a new role, a new name, and sometimes a new appearance. Um, but all of the things that are believed in now have always existed. There's nothing that has gone away. Um, it just is endlessly transforming to be better believed in because these things need energy and belief and dreaming and experience is what gives them energy. And that's why I say, like, I don't, I don't mean that, uh, aliens are different from angels or demons. They're, they're the same thing with a different face because people stopped believing. Mm. It's a more modern version. Exactly. The question that keeps coming up in my mind is before you talked about um, harnessing or transforming collective evils, I could say, collective demons, um, can you give an example of how to do that? Sure. So a really, a really good one is, you know, it's often political or um, gurus where they present themselves as having overcome a sin, maybe a particularly popular sin, and they offer them a path to absolving oneself of it, um, or that there's a problem plaguing a place, and one, you know, like the Pied Piper is a great example. It's like, well, I can take all the rats away. Of course, you know, it's not, <laughs> and that's kind of the irony too, is that there's a lot of hatred for children, like a lot of evils are very, very covered up, but in a way, the parents paid the Pied Piper to truly take away their kids, not just to um, take away the rats. Yeah, it was And that's up. kind of the danger, is like, mm. once you've chosen to do something demonic, um, you know, you are going to throw the baby out with the bathwater. You are going to lose something very important, no matter what. It's... I didn't think I was going to talk about this on a podcast, but I am now. So I've, um, I don't necessarily want to call it addiction because I, I don't think it's a good idea to categorize oneself like that. But I've dealt with, like, for instance, in the past smoking, what I would say is too much weed. Mm. And, um, I found that addiction cannot truly blossom if total honesty surrounds it. And so if you are dealing with something where you're over consuming a substance or something like that or gambling or whatever it is, I don't gamble, but uh, 
if you tell someone, like someone close to you, every single time you do it, like for me, it's just like every single time I was going to smoke pot, I would, I would tell someone close to me. Addiction thrives in dishonesty. And so what you said about suppressing it and, and, and pu pushing it under really resonated with me deeply. What is done in the dark will be brought to the light. And that's the thing is like, what is evil if it is known and kind of shared? Like, there are a lot of things that just won't happen if they are dealt with honestly. Um, the evil does often come about from... And I also think that the desires grow sicker. They devolve through their being hidden. Just like, you know, molds grow in dark, moist places, as does evil. Um, evil develops over time, I think. Uh, like, I'm not a person who kind of believes in inborn evil. I think there there are archetypal forms that lend themselves to doing culturally bad things, but mm. they have good aspects and can be good. Um, so it it is really a matter of hiding and being ashamed and being guilty that leads to the festering of these wounds and the festering of these activities. Um, that's a really good idea, though. I really I like the idea of like kind of tethering what you do to somebody so that it's like, oh, if they have a problem, it's maybe like, maybe there is something wrong. You know, I trust this person to know what is good for me to a degree. Mm. Yeah, there needs to be, you need to have someone who's um, mature enough and emotionally sound enough to handle it because it is quite a lot to give somebody as well. Like you're giving someone, once again, like a, a quite a bit of energy. And so they need to be grounded enough not to grow resentful. Well, I guess they, for me, there was resentment, but it was, it was dealt with. It was okay. Um, and I think that's part, that's is, part of it too, is that evil develops, mm -hmm. especially when, you know, most people are isolated. Most people are extremely lonely. And even if they are married or in relationships, they are still alone in the most profound sense and thus evil festers. Why are people alone in relationships? Because they're dishonest. Hmm. They're dishonest with themselves and they're dishonest with others. So they're unable to commit, unable to be vulnerable because once that vulnerability is exposed, they know what they believe is evil will come out. And ironically, by not exposing it, it becomes evil. There was an exercise that we did um... I do various retreats and my partner Ellie does meditation and coaching and stuff. And, um, there's this exercise that we did at a retreat and it was, it was just like the guy starts off with everyone doing a, a full body meditation. So a scan, like feel your toes, feel your big toe. What do you feel in your big toe? Like the sensations, feel the sensations all the way up the body. It takes like five or 10 minutes. And then he says, Okay, so for the rest of this retreat, this five-day retreat, I want you to try the whole time to be 50% in your body, 50% in the outside world. And then every, like, 20, 30 minutes, he would be like, and we're in our bodies. And there was this crazy thing that happened where I would just start to notice every time I looked at a different person, every time I look at someone like you versus my partner or my friend, my body feels different. And I can so much more clearly sense my emotions. Like, we think... I think a lot of people, 
are not able to differentiate because language doesn't really help us with this a lot of times the language that we colloquially use which forms our thoughts so there is actually if you're in tune with your body which one out of ten people can't do this um but that's a different More. issue uh there's the story that happens so your mind is making up the story like oh he said this to me and then i said this and i'm this sort of person and then there's the emotion so like i'm angry i'm sad i'm fearful like those sorts of things people Oftentimes they'll say, I feel like, and then they'll tell a story. Like, I feel like he mm -hmm. hates me. That's not a, that's not a feeling. The, the feeling is, absolute, and it's a bodily I feel sensation. isolated and scared. I think this is yeah. some of the best and then, advice. Yeah. And then another layer is the sensation feel in the body that the body is <laughs> the emotional, like one of also one of my favorite lines I've ever heard from Reich is that the body is the unconscious for most like at the stage of culture that we're at, the body is the unconscious. And it gets worse and worse constantly. As we put our mind first and mind into machines and so on, the body becomes just an impediment, just an evil, and something to be controlled and diminished. When in fact the body is the ultimate source of power and meaning. And I think this is also why sexuality suffers so much now. Um, because without, when the when the mind is the only sexual organ, of course, very bizarre, bizarre things are going to come out, because it's no longer rooted in reality, and the body is the real. Hmm. You know, a lot of life now is an experiment in how far can we make reality uh, mental and not physical. Hmm. I did not think of it like that. That's. It's mind-blowing. Hmm. We do have this idea of the body being... I've, I've talked to some people. It is, it, a lot of people kind of have this sense that I'm, like, I'm a brain in a vat. And then my body is just the thing that I can, The meat suit that I control. Um, but it's, it's so... I, have, I more and more rely on my body for what to do next. Like... Whether or not I trust the person, is there like a sensation of fear in my body? Or even like, if I think about, if I, if I kind of meditate and feel my body and ask myself what exercises to do next, like my body knows what it wants to do and how far it should push itself. And it's not some sort of mental game. It's like, I just feel that sense, that part of my body lighting up and I can kind of imagine myself doing that exercise. And it's like, the body is such a source of infinite wisdom. Do you know William Blake? Yeah, not overly well, but yeah. So he traces this back to to monotheism, to Judaism and Christianity and Islam in the decentering of the body because in a lot of ways it's like that the one god of the Abrahamic religions is what Blake he Blake describes as the poetic. It is the ability to make ideas to to think and to enact those ideas whereas in the past many of the gods were much more material materially based and so the body became the demon the body became the source of evil of pagan wrongness and the mind became the holiest thing and the place where the war is fought in the spirit in the soul you know not to say that the mind is all of those things but it's certainly a part of it and so 
it's kind of a it's a conceit to say well, my mind is better my mind is what's true you know i can honestly say i'm somebody and this is i'm not trying to like you know get myself off but i'm a i'm a smart guy and i'm i think a lot yeah. and i've had great ideas that have felt magical i i've been able to use my mind to kind of make a living but it is incomparable to the simple pleasures of the body like a a good sandwich or a good steak or a cigarette or a walk mm. that is what keeps me alive that is what makes me continue living because the mind is also immensely terrible and you suffer insanely i mean i'm still young my body hasn't begun to suffer as badly as it will so it's understandable that with time we come to hate our bodies because they fail us in a way that we hope our minds don't but they will the mind if it you know it might have a little bit more longer of a half life than the body but even if we were to preserve them we would find how sick they get mm especially with modern culture we also fail our bodies quite badly Certainly. i'm surprised that you smoke cigarettes i love smoking cigarettes i think <laughs> i think doing something that is not always good for you is good for you. Hmm. I don't think living a life according to only what's healthy is healthy. Hmm. Like Do there's a lot of how your body feels when you smoke a lot of cigarettes? Oh yeah, I lost like like over 100 pounds. I've lost I lost a ton of weight. Um I breathe better, honestly, because a lot of it's magic. A lot of it is about intention. Mm. And I probably focus on my breathing more now that I smoke than I did in the past. Hmm. Um and it's a meditative and ritual object to me. I knew somebody who every cigarette, they were they were a satanist. Every cigarette was a prayer to Satan. And that's like an immensely magical thing to to devote especially an addiction if you can devote it and put intention behind it it becomes power. Mm. It's only when it's mindless that it's sick. You know there's a great uh, uh it didn't get it it's an apocryphal line but Christ and his apostles are walking about on the sabbath and a farmer his sheep has fallen into a hole into a pit and it will die if he does not get it out. but it's the sabbath he can't work christ and he, and when christ is walking by he says you are wise what should i do and he says if thou knowest what thou doest thou art blessed if thou dost not know thou art accursed mm. and it's so it's like the violation of taboo and the violation of health does not need to be evil if it is consciously uh intended I um have never used much tobacco in my life, but there was a Mexican shaman who I saw who I met once and he um he snorted rape on my nose. It's like a you have to have someone snort up your nose and you have to close up your nasal cavity and it's like powdered tobacco. And like snuff. As soon as he did it, sorry? Like, like it's snuff? like snuff. Except the way he said it is you can't get that from snuff because with snuff you have to inhale. and oh. with this you you don't inhale um so mm. when you shoots it up 
I don't know if that's true, but there was certainly a lot of magic to it. Um, immediately I felt grounded in a way I hadn't felt before. And I was smoking a lot of weed at the time, this was years ago, and he said, every time you smoke weed, you are opening up a portal to another dimension, and those portals stay open unless you cleanse yourself. And this is the bathing, this is a bathing ritual. So you're cleansing yourself, closing up all the portals, and now you are back to your body and your, your I guess your energy is, I felt like my energy was being pulled out mm -hmm. into these other places. Um, and when I went to Peru and I climbed a, we climbed a mountain over, over something like a four day period. And the guide with us said that tobacco was one of the five sacred plants in Peruvian culture. And I wonder well, if every time someone smokes a cigarette, if they are just trying to find God. Truly. Tobacco, like to, to me, tobacco is very immensely sacred and it's a big part of my poetic project. Um, because I only, I only started smoking cigarettes relatively recently. It's been like a little over a year now. Um, but, you know, people who watch the channel can see my bodily change. Um, mm. You've changed but a it's lot. All, I was going to ask you about that. Oh, huge, immense change. Um, obviously with other things. But that, I, I do consider it an important part of it. And when, when people, you know, some, as a joke, when people are like, oh, how did you lose the weight? I'm like, I just started smoking. But it's partially true. Um, but... You know, in Indian culture, tobacco is brought down by a god, by the white buffalo woman. She comes down with two gifts. She has two things in her hands. She's glowing white. Two guys see her. One is terrified and tries to run off. She vaporizes him and kills him. The other one is like, all right, <laughs> you know, I, gotta, I have to take it. And she gives the, the plant of tobacco and the pipe to smoke it. And from then, it, and she also gives him all of the significance of it, the rituals to do with it, and so on. Now, <clears throat> do you know the Church of the Subgenius? Nope. So, the Church of the Subgenius is kind of a joke religion, but with some of the most immense truths of any of the modern religions. I think it's from the 80s or late 70s and focuses on this salesman god named J.R. Bob Dobbs and he smokes a pipe and what he is selling to the world is slack. It is not working and not being a hard worker, not trying. It's all about slack and through slack you can attain uh, godhood. You can overcome the conspiracy which rules the world through imposed labor and struggle which the normals all engage in. By checking out of that, you can get to the real um, stuff that matters, which is like smoking and fucking. Mm. And making money. In Judaism. And, yeah. In Judaism, uh, In Judaism, there is the Sabbath, obviously, Shabbat. And I've often wondered why Christianity hasn't picked it up. Like, I mean, they, they had it until something like the 1900s or late 1800s started tail, tailing off. And now there is no Sabbath in Christianity. So the Jewish Sabbath is different than the Christian Sabbath. But 
in the Jewish Sabbath, it's, it's quite strict. You, you can't work. Um, there's very strict definitions of work, but like you can't cook, you can't make money, you can't talk about business, you can't make plans, you can't swim, you can't go further away. You can't like ride a car or anything like that. So what happens is that you have all these Jewish communities and they're centered around the synagogue because you have to go to synagogue. I mean, not strictly women don't have to, but you're supposed to go to synagogue. And that means that every single Jewish person who's practicing lives almost exclusively within walking distance of their entire community, mostly that they've grown up with. And they know everyone because they see them in, in synagogue all the time. And so it's like, there's this idea of a Jewish conspiracy, but like, I think Jews just figured out how to have a community, whereas every other culture just decided to fuck off and not talk to each other and leave their families at home. Whereas Jew the Jewish community is just like, oh, that's my neighbor. He needs financial help. I'll lend him some money. You know, it's, it's like, Absolutely. or like, uh, yeah. It's and one, it's all, that, what is also, I think the most important element of that is that Christianity force pretty much forces like castration you know on the intelligentsia it's like the most faithful people the priests and the nuns don't have children it's like in an enforced non-community whereas judaism have is like, like six children they have like 10 exactly and that is how <laughs> the culture is maintained because a lot like intelligence is part of the culture like literature and study are hugely important. It's funny. Um, one of my girlfriends would always say, "Like you are an ortho you are like an Orthodox Jew. You would love to be Orthodox because all the men do is stay at home and read, while the wife works." <laughs> and like it, it's um, it's a way of life devoted to a singular purpose. And I think that is what a lot of the conspiracy is jealous of. There's, I think a lot of, a lot of, uh, conspiracy is resentment for various, th there's a lot of things, but what I've always found strange is particularly related to the occult. It's if you can recognize that the occult is an important part of maintaining power and exercising power, why do you fear it and hate it instead of learning it and exercising it? Mm. Like... I don't understand the Christian compulsion to make moral good weak. Yes. It's like anything absolutely. powerful must be evil. And this well, is insane. It's the same. Christianity does castrate itself. Like, so your version, when you said the occult, what I think of is money, which is also, I mean, it's a form of raw power. And then Christians will say, well, you can't, the, the whole thing about threading a camel through the eye of a needle. It's like, well, if you want to have power in the world and you want to make good, positive change, money really helps. <laughs> like, you don't need it, but if you don't have money, 99% of your opportunities to help the world are gone. And to Crowley, Alistair Crowley, he talks about, you know, there are the four, the four powers of the world, of which money is one, and that's earth, material power. And the other three are ignored for the most for the most part, uh, and if they are not ignored, they are severely underdeveloped. And I saw I saw a, a Twitter thread recently um, talking about I think it was Pope Leo the tenth, but he was not a priest. 
he was just made pope. He was like a, a really cultured guy. And he started funding the arts. And all the people, all these like internet Catholics are like, it's a good thing we don't get, it's a good thing it's all priests now. Like this is, you know, this is sick. This was evil. It's like you despise the one good thing that the church has brought about, which is brilliant art. It's mm -hmm. like you would rather it be ugly because in truth, you know, it, it's a very ugly type of person who wishes the world was as ugly as them. To despise art as something that is not divine, in fact, as perhaps the most important thing in divinity is the beauty of creation. Mm -hmm. um, it's insane to me. You know, it's insane that people are willing to make ugliness their god. Um, do you know, there's a great French poet, Atta Rambo, Rimbaud. Um, he has this great line in A Season in Hell where he's like, you know, I breathed in the air of sin and misfortune was my god. He... It's like a whole journey through through wickedness. I love it. Mm. My favorite, maybe my favorite poem. I love it. But this is the case for many online internet religions. Misfortune is their god because only isolated, lonely, ill-developed people commit to these bizarre formulations of religion. In the if you brought any of their visions of Christianity or any religion to the people who practiced it like uh maybe 300 years ago they'd vomit they'd be they'd be they'd consider them you know demon worshipers what is an example of uh of a crazy internet religion I think like I mean I think uh, a lot of conspiracy is developed around is is a religious phenomena yeah. I don't know if you've seen my website um nope but I have a whole section about conspiracy and about how it is a reemergence of the pagan gods in more evil forms because mm -hmm. they're repressed. Um, and so, so, you know, sometimes the conspiracies are true, but they are still a product of the repressed pagan gods. You know, it's, it's people living out these divine wills, these subverted divine wills. Um, my father is really into conspiracy theories, um, and I totally agree with you there. It is a it's a religious phenomenon. It's not just conspiracy theories for him. He also has a, a massive religious undertone, which is also it borders on religion for him in a way that he un, like he would consider it a religion. Um, and I do wonder what collective demon this is. Um, like, well, what, give me a conspiracy, what? yeah, and I'll give you the I'll give uh, you the god. Yeah, so he believes that aliens are controlling the government, and he believes in all the different alien races. There's a ton of them. There's the Nordics and Does the reptilians. He think and yeah, is it reptilians that are ruling? Anunnaki. No, he thinks there's a war. Um, okay. Earth is a battleground for many different reptilian or different alien species. Who does he want to win? Um. I don't know if he has a specific, maybe, I don't, yeah, I don't know if there's a specific alien that he wants to win. Um, but maybe the, maybe a certain, a certain branch of the Anunnaki, maybe, I'm not sure. The most angelic. So that I would consider to be Jupiter in Aquarius. So Jupiter 
we have the question of power. We have the question of lofty, because Jupiter's king of the gods. He's top of the pyramid. So Jupiter is a conspiracy about who's at the top. Who is at the top? So the Illuminati is Jupiter at the top of the pyramid. But then we get into its aliens, which is Aquarius, as we talked about in the beginning. So it's a Jupiter and Aquarius conspiracy that fixates him. Hmm. I like... I, f I usually don't trust people who say they are Jungians because generally they completely misrepresent Jung. Uh, which I don't blame them for because he's very difficult to read. But the I heard someone say the other day that Jung really liked horoscopes and then they started talking about horoscopes and I was like, that's not what Jung was talking about. I think you just read on the internet somewhere that Jung liked horoscopes. Jung did but like I horoscopes, liked... but in a very different way. <laughs> yeah, in a very different way. And I like the way that you represent... I wouldn't say you're Jungian, you're you. You have your own individual... I'm a, I'm a Jungian. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Jung said himself, I'm glad I'm Jung because I wouldn't want to be a Jungian. And I think you're at that place where you've successfully integrated Jung's philosophy into yourself, but then grown above it, which is actually one of the stages of Jungian development, where um, the, the child is attached to the mother at first and then joins a, let's say, the army. The army was a really great place for young, I'll say young men in this context, to become integrated with something and become a master, like an expert level. And then uh, eventually you would become an individual, you would achieve individuation where you've integrated what the army has told you, you've received those second father figures, and now you are yourself, and you seem to be past the stage of individuation. I don't know about that, but I'm lucky I started reading Jung when I was so young. I started reading Jung when I was 14, mm. so I think that is part of why I grasp it, because I was still like young and impressionable, but... I read him extensively. I read a lot. I read a lot when I was that age. I read less now. I read the same things a lot now. Like, I reread religious texts more than I am looking for new thinkers. Um, or, you know, I'll, I'll brush up on things that I find important. But I'm not really at that stage where I'm like, oh, I need all this stuff because I have a good palate with which I operate, with which I do my work. When you first said that you were into the, that you had read a lot about Romans, immediately I was like, of course he did. Like somehow in your identity, in the way you speak, there is something about you that I would, if you would, if you would ask me like, do you think I, I am really into the Romans? I would have been like, absolutely. Yes. Like, I, and I don't know exactly what it is. It's your articulation maybe. Um, Rhetoric. Sorry? Rhetoric, the skill. Rhetoric, yeah. Mm. Rhetoric, skill. There's a, a certain thought process that I think goes with learning a lot about Roman history, which I have not done. I think... That's I want what, to ask one of the you... Oh, go on. Oh, sure. No, 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 no. You go on. I want to ask you about your evolution. So, um, you have changed physically quite a lot since when you first made those videos. And... And between now and so what is I think physically but also mentally what has changed in you what can you can you point to some large major factors besides smoking cigarettes yes um, I think I was I was very old when I was 18 and making those YouTube videos I was much older then than I am now I'm now much younger and 
much less um, blind to the world. I think those videos and that period of my life was at a very, it was important and it was good, but I was certainly um, coddled by comforts. I, I was in a, a very good long-term relationship. Uh, I ate a lot more. I was very, you know, materially comfortable. And so my mind was satisfied. And in a lot of ways, in it's been about a year now, I've had some of the most insane transformations of my life because I simply accepted that I wanted to live more. I wanted to experience more. And to do that is to accept I really knew very little. I know very little. Um, I'm very good at speaking and playing a few intellectual games, but I am deeply inexperienced in the realm of living. Um, and this is not in like, um, like I've had relationships, I've eaten lots of food, I've gone lots of places, but in the matter of time, which is necessary, you know, Time is where learning happens. Learning is not, it, can, it is almost impossible for it to be immediate. It can be in very, very rare, miraculous instances, but experience is defined by time. And I've lived lives that I could not imagine even a year ago or two years ago. Um, so it really has been a transformation through regression in a lot of ways. I don't know if you've seen all of the posting about Tom Thumb that I've done, but by accepting a... A what? No, I have, have seen that. It was confusing to me. <laughs> <laughs> by accepting a child persona, a childlike persona, I have freed myself a lot from acting like I know more than everybody, um, which I think I did. I think I, I did honestly feel I had definitely this like scent, but it was, you know, protective. It was because I had experienced so little that I was like, I gotta be, I gotta be better. I have to be better. Now I'm much more willing to just experience life and grow. There's this chapter from Brave New World. You probably know what I'm talking about already. And um, I just want to read it out because it's, it, it's, it encapsulates exactly what you said. So there's this guy, John the Savage, who's grown up in this Indian reservation and he gets to modern society and it's full of comfort. And um, this is towards the end of the book when the controller is kind of giving them this option to live in this world of comfort. And he says, but I don't want comfort. I want God. I want poetry. I want real danger. I want freedom. I want goodness. I want sin. All right, then. Oh, in fact, Mustafa Mont said, Mustafa Mont, you're claiming the right to be unhappy. All right, then, said the savage defiantly. I'm claiming the right to be unhappy. Not to mention the right to grow old and ugly and impotent, the right to have syphilis and cancer, the right to have too little to eat, to be lousy, the right to live in constant apprehension of wait, what may happen tomorrow, the right to catch typhoid, the right to be tortured by unspeakable pains of every kind. There was a long silence. I claim them all, said the savage at last. Mustafa Man shrugged his shoulders. You're welcome, he said. And this is truly the will of any free person. The true will of a free person is to accept that. 
It is to accept the world as it is, and not some fictionalized other world. No matter how painful the world is. Can you tell me about some of the adventures you've had in the last two years? Sure. Some of the ups um, and downs? Let me think um, of a good one. So I think one of the important ones, I did a magic ritual. This is the first, I don't even think I've talked about it. So now we're, we're beginning. It's I'm long, I'm far away enough from it. Um, I had started the year. I'm going to sound crazy. It's hard. It's hard to talk about life without sounding crazy sometimes, mm. especially when you live a crazy life. Only for um, the people who don't get it. I had been making a film. My friend, co-host of the MIA, Blair and I, had written a film, and we'd begun to make it. But we kind of lost track of it as we kind of decided to, to move. And the film opens with a car crash. And then we'd been filming it in December, late December. And then January 1st, got into a car, car crash with some friends. I wasn't driving. Um, and this kind of initiated the year where it became clearer and clearer that this film had been a ritual and a hyperstitioning of our journey to Los Angeles and how we sort of began to gain a reputation there and have influence there. Um, we partied a lot. We did magic rituals regularly with groups at the parties. We, we sort of wanted to influence a push toward the occult where a lot of people, you know, they, they recognize that LA is demonic and evil and it's all, it's full of devil worshippers, but they don't know what they're doing. So we showed them how to do it. Um, not devil worship, but good stuff. Um, so we get a lot, we, we do film work. We got all, I don't know. It's hard to pin it down because so much of it was relationships. So much of it was friendships. So much of it was exploration that defined it. You know, it's, it's, it's actually something I've been meaning to narrativize, to make comprehensible to people in the form of a poem. I, I, I've, but I need to get to the end of the year because I haven't even reached a year yet, but this year has contained such multitudes compared to the previous 21 years. Um, it's insane, but I think a poem is the only form I feel comfortable expressing the year in. Um, there's just so much, and so much of it is impossible to talk about. Life is impossible to talk about. I don't, I don't know. It's hard to say. Language is not a very good method of capturing life. But poetry is, I will say. I, I do love poetry. I have an, a, a new poetry book coming out very shortly. Really? Um, I do. I do. Um, it's called Alluvia. And what does that mean? I will read. Uh, it means it's um, the sediment formed by flowing water. 
I will read a poem to you, though, if you would like. Yes. Pick a number between 1 and 45. 22. All right, let's see 22. All right. 22 is called Frogs. Little frog posed patiently like a yogi. <laughs> I like it. That's just a cute one. Um, and then I'm also putting out a deck of cards. Mm. They're called Symbol, the Gift of Thoth. And in my studies this year, I have um, studied a lot of Ezra Pound and a lot of Chinese language. I've been idiot Pound's ideograms. And the concept of pictures that become symbols has become immensely important to me and for how one can even understand what symbols are. And this deck is an attempt to share uh, what I've learned about that, mm. about the nature of symbolism. Read the back. It's, Thoth created writing to illuminate the world. This deck is a key to grasping the secret symbolism of the occult. Mm. I was going to ask you before how one of the questions that I had planned to ask you was something like how, what, what are the qualities that make a meme viral? Color. Color is so vital, immensely vital. And symbolic resonance. That's really all. I mean, it's really just a matter of how well can this resonate with something that is unspoken. And again, on my website, I have a whole system of categorization for memes by color, format, um, almost kind of like literary movement. I think there's mimetic movements um, and so on. There's a lot of things that can uh, make up the components. But today, I don't see the same kind of relentless creativity in meme making that there was uh, two or three years ago. So I was going to ask not... about that because you, you hit this very symbolic number. You hit about a hundred thousand on your channel and then you stopped. You know, I'm focused on life for a while and I am going to continue. I, I, I made a new video this month or last month in October. Um, just about something I liked, just about a video I liked. Um, and I do intend on making more videos. It's just been a matter of focusing on my life for a while. Mm. I had this, um, I had this thing that happened that I still can't quite explain. And I, I made a, a, a shorts video, like a reels video on Instagram. Um, and it was funny and it got something like 200,000 views. And then I, it was the first viral video that I've had. And then I just stopped making them in that format. And I can't quite figure out why I did that. Um, I'm not sure if it was because I, I didn't want to do those types of videos. Um, if something like the fame was the, the fame of, of having a, a viral video was, was too much pressure. I, I, I don't, I don't quite know. I think popularity can be immensely painful when 
it does not conform to our will. Um, if you make stuff that you don't care for, and it does very well, you are not going to feel good doing it. Um, you know, I was lucky enough that for a while I made videos that I liked that did well, and I'm thankful for that. But I also feel as if, you know, my now my desires are a bit different. Um, I don't I certainly don't feel nearly as compelled to make like weekly or more than weekly videos at all. Um, I've said a lot already, and a lot of what I have to say about things is going to be in different formats now. Um, I have different and new things to say. And I don't expect everybody to follow at all. I'm, I'm immensely thankful for the people, the many people I do have that have stuck with me in spite of there being no videos. Um, you know, much of the work of creation is invisible to the audience, uh, almost all of it, mm -hmm. unless for some reason an artist shows it. And I'm very fortunate that my voice and my work have been enough to move a lot of people. I'm immensely grateful for that. You're also undergoing this quite, I mean, I'm 28 and looking back and, and kind of modeling my life and, and the lives around me that I've seen um, onto you, projecting it onto you, I would say that you are going through quite a period of change. Like the, the eight, you are a, perhaps the biggest change that people undergo is, is between the ages of 18 and 22 or so when you go from barely not a child, like you're still kind of a child at 18. And then there's this massive under, under like brain development that happens until 22. And then, I don't know, for me, it seems like between 22 and 25 is less so. And then, um, I mean, we're always changing, but like you started off meme analysis as a child, essentially at 18 and you even at 17, I had made videos, uh, just not on the mm. YouTube channel, but it began when I, and I'd written, I guess it truly started when I was 16. Mm. You're a fundamentally different person now, um, and I, I could, I could understand if you, if there is a part of you that feels as if you should keep making these videos and keep churning out this content because uh, I, I wonder if there's even some guilt of like, oh, I have this giant channel here and it's not, I'm not doing anything. And then there's another part of you that's like, that's not me anymore. <laughs> um, I, I could understand if there was some, some clash of identity going on no i really don't care at all about what most of the people think i don't care if they want more and i don't mm. want to give it or if they want more and i don't want to give it or if i want to give it and they don't want it it really doesn't matter um wow. creation is compulsive and it just must be done regardless of the audience i try as much as possible but sometimes my art is about influencing the audience you know, my art is not always a video or a poem or an image. Sometimes the work is magical and it is about influencing people. So, you know, there are different um, goals and different interactions with my audience. Um, but in general, you know, I haven't, I haven't really followed my audience anywhere. Um, I mean, I'll occasionally do things that they suggest, but for the most part, 
I have done what I wanted. Hmm. Do you think you'll go through a rebranding going from meme analysis to God disc or something? I think uh, there, the separation between the three entities will become more clear mm. of meme analysis, God disc and Chris Gabriel. Yes. Mm. You're asking Gabriel wonderful questions. Oh, thank, thank you. you. Yeah, it's uh, the Archangel Gabriel. It's very symbolic. Fitting. The speaking angel. Hmm. I think I wanted to know more about you as a person rather than... I mean, I... Like... It... Logically, I, I was considering asking a lot of meme questions, but it's like, that doesn't... I, I just want to know who you are, and it's it's such a unique channel, and you have so much interesting stuff to say I, I thought i would make it more personal hmm. how so i i released a video that did comparatively well to my other videos yesterday and um just with the famous person um mike mew i mean it's it was a good video too but uh all day I spent this morning I was just glued to my phone and almost stepped in front of traffic um, just completely living an unembodied existence staring at my screen and I wonder how if you you seem to be detached from the outcomes on the screen from the gamification of content creation and I'm wondering if you have any insights on how to how others can get better at that Man, that's hard. Um, because I remember I used to, I used to, I think I honestly enjoyed the ch making videos the most when nobody watched them or when very few people watched them because I kind of felt like I'm just having fun. When people start, um, it, it happened the day that the lockdowns started. My video did extremely well, the Doomer video. And I'm like, fuck this. And I went out for a walk. And I'm just like, I'm not going to care about it. Because in a lot of ways, I guess there was almost an element of spite. It's like, I've made better things than this. You people are stupid. You want, <laughs> you know, you want doomer, boomer, oomer. You want this nonsense. I look at the goods I've given you. You don't even care. Of course, I kept making videos and they, they got better and bigger. Um, but there was always a, a sense of like, I am doing this to get truth across whether they want it or not. Um, you know, a lot of it is like, I, I, it's kind of like a virus where, you know, it, it's accepted into a membrane and then injected with something else unintended. Um, so through memes, through popular images, I am able to provide insight into things that I think uh, I, I, I do think memes matter. I'm not saying that memes don't. I just think most people have no idea how to interact with meaningful things. Um, and it's good that people watch videos just to laugh. I think that's good and important and probably more important than understanding them at all. Um, but I do want people to understand things. And so I did it in a way that I think is funny, um, that I think works. So the amount of people that are able to respond 
Um, even though, you know, even if a video gets popular, I don't think most people understand it. I think very few people do. And I think the people who do tend to be some of the most um, interesting and intelligent people. They're very committed in, in a way to the vision of the, this whole thing mattering, of there being more to the internet than we're aware of. And so it, it's a matter, you know, it, it makes the net wider, but I don't expect to catch as many big fish as the videos had in the beginning. You know, a lot of my favorite people that have come from the audience, I met way before it was really popular. They were searching for this content. Hmm. So, you know, fans just like are people who watch viewers, subscribers, they don't really matter to me that much if they're not already interesting people and the bigger something gets the less interesting people. How do you deal with the fact that potentially a hundred thousand people are projecting onto you? Um, oh, I love it. That's the most fun. That's the most fun part about it all. Um, because I mean, it's like a magician's uh, dream mm. because it's like, I know how to utilize persona. I know how to utilize imaging and symbolism that for many, many, many people who get famous, they have no idea how to separate themselves from it, how to interact with the persona. And it becomes horrid and wicked. And I'm, I have a lot of fun with it, honestly. I love, I love, um, I love meeting people who know it. I love meeting people who don't know it. It, it that, that's something that's amazing to me. Also, is like, at a party, you know, I could be a nobody or just like, oh, he reads tarot cards or whatever. And then, but there'll be somebody there who's like, oh my god, I love you. You know, you're the greatest. You have so you're such a, you're a genius. But like, and I love it. I love I love to be many things. I love to contain and project multitudes. Hmm. Do you, how does your, hmm, how do you identify with your persona? Does it feel like it's a, like you're an actor? Does it feel like a character that's not quite real? Well, there are elements, <clears throat> just like with Jung, you know, there are archetypes, there are aspects of myself that I peak shift. I, I bring them to the front and center and play with. And I think sometimes people are very, um, they're amazed that I'm very different in person. I'm a very different person from the character I portray on the YouTube channel. I'm a different person from the person I portray in a podcast or on a phone call. You know, there, there are so many different aspects that I am able to play with. I am an actor. I, I have acted in the past. I have love acting. Um, and, but also what's important is that reality, you know, the world, all the world is a stage. And there are so many parts of us that can be cultivated and made great. And everybody we're around brings out a different aspect of us. I'm very happy that a part of me that is really fun has touched a lot of people and moved a lot of people. 
Hmm. That sounds healthy. <laughs> sounds like a healthy way to interact with your persona. I'm glad to hear that response. I, um, one thing that I had a hard time, I think I've integrated it properly now. Um, but when I had that viral video, I had a lot of people mostly very positive, And then obviously the negative ones would stick out like a sore thumb and I would feel uh, hurt by them, um, because other people projected things onto me that I didn't think were real. And, um, I suppose one of the things that I've had a hard time dealing with is like, yeah, just other people's negativity, which is just obviously just intellectually, I understand perfectly well that like you cast a wide enough net and some people are fucking crazy and some people just don't like you. And a lot of people just put their mental illness onto you as a projection. Um, but emotionally, I, it was, it was difficult for me to, to deal with that negativity. I kind of love it. I love arguing a lot. Like I like getting into fights in the comments sometimes, um, especially on TikTok where it's really dumb people and I can just, <laughs> yeah. I'm like slicing them up. Um, it's fun. I have, I try to have as much fun as possible in general um, because there are parts of my life that are so deeply not fun and very, very serious and important um, that it has to be ridiculous. It has to be fun. Um, you know, Oscar Wilde says, art is something too serious to take seriously. And I feel that way about a lot. And so part of the fun to me of the internet persona, part of the fun of the internet is fighting with people. Part of the fun of the internet is fighting with people, period. Whether you do it in video games or in comment sections, it's fun. Um, you know, does it lower? It, 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 it does. And that's, that's one of my favorite comments I've ever received is they're like, you are so wise in your video. Why are you arguing with people in the comments? And I'm like, it's fun. I enjoy it, you know? And part of it is knowing that there is, it's two different parts. It's two different elements of a very multifaceted uh, being that are being expressed. And the internet is a playground at its best. It's at its worst when it is a dishonest, like if, if somebody deeply wants to be aggressive, but I also argue in person, which is what I'm getting to is that if you are a very timid, cowardly person, but you argue relentlessly online, it's sick. It's bad. Mm. If it is yep. merely a, a game, if the internet itself is a game, and not too important of a game. It can be very healthy. It doesn't need to be bad. If it's used intentionally, it can be very good. It's very wise. Um, I have a lot of... So to me, there's this uh, kind of sickness in, in internet culture. Not, not necessarily surrounding how you're doing it, but like, for instance, in the culture war, the culture war is... Uh, it's, terrifying to me because first of all we call it the culture war like that implies a war is something that you kill people over and we've just all adopted this mimetic idea that we're in a war which is like i don't think other people are as scared of this phenomena and this this wording as i am um but we seem to be in this era of well obviously tribal identity i mean that's pretty clear um but like 
I was a big fan of Jordan Peterson when he first came out, and I, I still am to an extent, but I feel as if I've integrated him and stepped above what he's taught me. So, like, I, I still use a lot of his principles, but I'm not, like, ideologically possessed by Peterson or w whatever you want to call it um, anymore. And one thing that... Well, are you, are you familiar with Peterson? I mean, I'm sure you are, but are you... How familiar are to you with Peterson? I haven't read yeah, him. Cool. Yeah, that's fine. Um, so, he created this broad identity of um, the clean your room guy, good life advice, like be honest. I mean, just really solid life advice. And then there was this other part of him that is really, really angry at the cultural neo-Marxists. And if you think about tribal identity, I mean, a lot of America has become, in the Western world and the world in general, has, has drifted into cult-like behavior. And I mean that um, symptomatically. So one of the symptoms of a cult is that you only listen to information from your own point from your own group identity um you don't listen to the others you kind of black white everything you don't get sleep a lot of americans get like an hour less sleep than they used to which is a massive like it's taking a huge toll on our collective consciousness and i don't think we realize totally, how much totally that's a great that's a really brilliant point mm. i haven't heard that before but that is extremely important yeah um and just the amount of stress that we're put under, like you, you join a cult when you're isolated from your friends and family and you're under undergoing a new change, which a lot of people just are, you know, they go, they move to a different university and they're suddenly away from their, their identity, their core friends and family structure. And then they just get sucked up into like a gender studies course or, you know, Prager U or whatever. And, and then they just develop this cult identity. And there's this thing that Peterson holds i think in the collective unconscious of uh this rampant tribalism and what he's doing when he when he insults postmodern neo-marxists is like and I, I really have a lot of love for him i'm just i'm just saying what i think is in his shadow and, and what, what was in my shadow more importantly and the the link i feel to the collective shadow uh there's this if you're insulting postmodern neo-marxists and you're debating them even if debating is a really he says we should debate people so we don't get violent. But the thing is, if you're debating people in a cult with logic, they don't listen because they don't listen to logic. I mean, they're, they're based, their values are very emotion driven and identity driven. And debating people will strengthen your side. But if you want to, are you strengthening your side so you can win a war? Because if that's what you're moving towards, um, that seems like a shift towards violence and not away from violence. And so I suppose if you think that the war is inevitable, then you definitely should argue against the postmodern neo-Marxists or the conservatives and Trump tards or whatever they are. Uh, but if you want to avoid violence, then argument is not the correct response in most cases. And in fact, most cases, I would say their correct response is to look at, for instance, like, Almost all the radical feminists that I've ever met, if, if, I, if I talk to them enough, they've had terrible like trauma associated with men. Like the men in their lives have been awful to them. And they've just, a lot of them have never met a good man like, or like had a good relationship with a father. What they should do brother. is have like dinners and share food. <laughs> really, like, like old, yeah. like old fam warring tribes and old families. Like the only peace is food. Um, there should be shared meals. That is the key to peace. And, and a peace pipe. They should, everybody should like pass a blunt or something stupid. And that would do more than any debate. Um, but I think in truth, we are not in a culture war. We are in a spiritual war. And 
so both sides of the culture war are on the same side of the spiritual war. Um, how to describe this quickly is difficult, but I consider the movement of the aeon, that which we talked about in the beginning, these platonic months, these 2,000-year periods, I see the old aeon, and I see the new aeon. I see the old aeon as deeply moralistic, as deeply um, traditional or anti-traditional, deeply polarized. I see the new aeon as childish um, and moving toward new things, good and bad. You know, the, I think the desire to overcome the body is a deeply aeonic desire. Equally, I see the drive to, to live in peace and harmony with God is also a deeply aeonic desire. Both are very modern, very, very new ways of looking at old things. Um, the old world is very violent and wants to continue to exist. It wants to prevent this new world from being born. And both sides of the culture war are attempting to maintain old Aeon philosophies into the new. And it will not work, quite simply. Um, the, the new, the next 2,000 years are going to be insane and unimaginable to us now. And the best thing that we can do is simply attempt to move things along, is to commit to the movement of the world, which is the movement of God. Not try to maintain kind of silly human structures, but to move with the world, the vibe. What does that look like? Can you give a concrete example? Do you know, have I, have I told you, or have you seen my discussions on vibe materialism? No. So, did you hear about the vibe shift? No. Okay, all right. Um, the vibe. So, does a glass of water vibe? It depends who you ask. My dad would say, yes, water has a spiritual consciousness and a memory. But you. I'm just asking don't you. Don't think about it. Yeah. Don't think about it. Does a glass of water vibe? Vibe or no vibe? I want to say yes. Okay, vibe. So does a watch vibe or no vibe? I think everything has a vibe. Okay, would you agree some things have bad vibes, though? Mm, I would interpret them as bad vibes. My body yes. would interpret them as bad vibes, yeah. Absolutely. And the body is the ultimate vibe. The body is the thing that vibes. So, to me, moving away from old morality toward vibe, toward a matter of, like, what feels good to my body? What feels intuitively right? And what is exciting? What, is, what inspires passion? What inspires ecstasy and excitement? That is what vibes. Equally, just having calmness is a vibe. A vibe. Not necessarily a good vibe or bad vibe, just a vibe. But uh, it's a matter of an energetic dimension to the world. And by moving past the purely moralistic or mechanical viewing of the world, by adding a, a spiritual 
energetic dimension, you simply begin to live differently. And it's some, something that Philip K. Dick put very, very clearly, which is just, if you read the I Ching, you become Taoist. If, if you take seriously the wisdom of the I Ching, your life changes. This is true of all things. And what I am, what I see in the new world is that spirituality and the occult and whatever you want to call it, but all of these undiscovered dimensions, uh, the psychic, uh, outer space, inner space, all of these are going to be the focus of the next 2000 years. So beginning to focus on them now and not having this kind of reactionary and conservative in the ultimate sense of like, no, these are new. I don't understand it. It's bad of like the spiritual, the psychic, the occult, like, oh, I don't want to know. I don't want to know it. This isn't, this isn't old. I don't understand it. It's not worth knowing, which of course, you know, I'm, and I'm not saying it's right wing. Communists are some of the most guilty of despising the spiritual and the religious. Um, I think politics in general don't vibe. I think they're an anti-vibe. I think they exist to steal the vibe from the world. Much of the world now is structured around feeding on natural energies and preventing people from living as individuals and living correctly. So the new world vibes. That's it. Okay. I've got a few things to say about that. Um, so the first one is the same thought has popped up as I had when you talked about doing uh, ceremonies, occult ceremonies in LA, which was magic. The magic that you're playing with is incredibly powerful. Are you sure you're using it correctly? <laughs> because power can go towards good and mostly towards, I think mostly it's, it's bad if you don't, if you don't use it correctly, like Solomon did. When, you do your will, you move past good and evil. Good and evil is a realm that is vital to those who want to define their lives outside of power. Okay, okay. You can say good and evil aren't real, which makes sense. Um, I, I, think I don't I think they're not real. As a, I don't think yeah, they're not real. But I, 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 was, I was saying more... I mean, what I was using was, I was using those terms in a, in a relative fashion. And so, for instance, um, I think most people would agree that good would be something like, um, you know, having a, having a great relationship with your family and, and loving them and having a supportive relationship where everyone grows in the way they want to. And bad would be killing your whole family. Now, um, you could say that those things are relative and that's such a bizarre you know, example because <laughs> religion is literally entirely about killing your family it's like the whole point what do you mean the one of the most important things that happens in every religious system is the individual choosing god and the will of the gods over their family members like this is the most important thing um like one of the great ones, you know, Orestes uh, in the Oresteia, he has to kill his mother. 
and she's like baring her breasts like I fed you I fed you don't don't and he has to kill her because it's the will of Apollo he has to kill his mother and um, Hercules kills his wife and children because it's the will of Hera and I mean he feels bad about it but it's what ha literally had to be done um, Christ says says it best you know one of his one of his followers is like my my father has died let me go to his funeral and he says let the dead bury the dead if you're with me that's it you have to follow me there's not there the, the dead don't matter your family doesn't matter there's more um, so the things that define good the beings that define good certainly are not good according to that metric I I would actually say that Judaism may there is there are parts of it where you put God over your family. Um, Abraham though did not kill his son. He God but would have an angel told would have would have would is have. different than would have is different know. than than doing it. If you think it, you've done it according to Christ. I don't believe that. I've thought about murdering people and I haven't murdered them. In your heart, you have though. Yeah, it's true. According to the court of law, though. <laughs> <laughs> and oh, that's the thing. We, if if you are a spiritual person, you have to recognize that the courts, the material world, and the laws of the material world are entirely secondary to divine law. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. So there's something else that I wanted to say here, and uh, it's there is this vibe. I I agree in part with the vibe because the vibe is the most. I mean. It's an incredibly important thing. I, I make a lot of decisions based on vibes. Um, most of my life decisions are based on vibes. But in Judaism, which I'm just inundated with right now, um, there's this idea of the Sabbath. And every Friday, uh, you have to go and have dinner with your family or your close community. And you have to sit around and talk to them with no phones and look them in the eye and tell them how you're doing. And there's this recurrent meeting that happens um you spend the day with them even if you're a billionaire the most successful successful person in the world between friday and saturday night you 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 take your you turn your phone off and you look at your children and you ask them how their week was and you don't you can't escape it if you're a religious jew because god tells you that you have to and the problem i think with listening to the vibe is that there is no structure in place to make you do it and it doesn't seem clear to me that without a structure, you will sit down with your family and look them in the eye and have dinner with them. And instead, the, the corporate monster will, will destroy your soul, will, will steal every ounce of, of life from you. So this is the, the difference. that we, This is the separate viewpoint that we have. I view God. God is the vibe. God is mm. that energy. When, when Christians say that God is love, they mean God is energy. Um, and thus the structure of the vibe is the, the manifold manifestations and emanations of God. It is merely through playing vibe or no vibe or reading vibes that you begin to grasp intuitively what the world is structured by. And it is structured by God. It's structured by divinity and energy. Um, you know, we talked earlier about material reality and material wealth. And I said it's only one-fourth 
of the world. And the other three elements exist almost purely as vibe. They exist almost purely energetically, but they are very, very real. They've always been recognized as real. Um, and so I think, you know, these nat nat the best natural laws are energetic laws. They're not moral laws. They're purely energetic. And so for the people who are more fixated on the corporation or their job than their family, they are not vibing. They're not living in accordance with their natural law. They have, they have sinned against the vibe. Mm. Okay, so one more. I actually, I want to get into tarot reading after this, but I, I want to ask you one more thing to do with this. Um, you mentioned when you make videos that most people don't fully comprehend them. And I actually think that perhaps the people that best comprehend them know more than you do somehow, or, or added additional layers to the, to the conversation. But, um, and I, I found, I have the exact same belief. Lex Friedman had a really good point about flat earthers at some point. He said that flat earthers are telling us something and we should be listening deeply to them. Maybe not like scientifically analyzing them. That's only one layer of reality. But the fact, for instance, that flat earthers are telling us that there's a massive distrust of the scientific community and maybe we should be paying attention to that. And like every comment I saw on that video was Lex Friedman is an idiot for listening to flat earthers. Like, you know, it was just like, and, but Lex Friedman is talking to the intellectual elite. He's not talking to the people commenting on YouTube who are angry at flat earthers and, and projecting their anger out of him. And in the same way, uh, to loop back on this, there are not a lot of people that I know that, that feel the vibe or that, oh, I think a lot of people feel the vibe. I think a lot of people are not aligned in their structure enough to let the vibe resonate throughout them. And I am not perfectly aligned. Obviously, I don't know many people who are even close to that. But I would say that you are very experienced at feeling the vibe and very good at it, but most people are not. And so is it possible to bring humanity up in their... I feel like it's a lightning rod. It's like alignment. If the lightning rod is broken, it's, the electricity isn't going to go through. Actually, it will, but whatever. No, the, um, as you yeah. study Judaism, you're going to find that that is one of the most important aspects. Like, to put it in a vulgar way, if you, if you want to vibe as, as a, you know, if you want to understand Kabbalah, mm. it's literally about the lightning bolt going through the body. Mm. It's literally about, like, the str God strikes um, divinity does, you know, Satan falls like lightning and Jupiter is known by lightning. And the Chinese word for God is lightning, mm. lightning and thunder are it's immediate, the loudest thing imaginable, the thing that changes the world. It sets fires, it, it destroys and it's electricity. It's magic. Um, so sometimes it can be like that. And if God chooses you, you will vibe, period. But the other thing to me that is the only way is playing games. It's having fun. Playing, being childlike is being closer to God than being serious and being rigid and structured incorrectly. Um, you know Heraclitus, the ancient Greek 
pre-Socratic philosopher, says, God is a child and the world is blocks and toys. And I think that's very true. Hmm. That's very good. Okay, moving on, if you will, to tarot. I would love to know what your... Um, you, you said you read tarot at parties. When I so, did a tarot reading with... Oh, go on. Oh, no, no. You go on. Sorry. I did a tarot reading with a friend of mine, and I just got a new tarot deck, and she said, oh, I don't believe in magic. Like, I don't believe this tarot is real. And then we ended up doing the reading, and I said, don't be so sure about it. And what... I mean, the, the version of tarot that I brought up was essentially therapy. Like, you have this... Think of the situation in your mind that's going on, and then let's see a new aspect of it. So you you pick the world or the fool and maybe we read a definition of it online and I'm like how does this apply to your situation and suddenly you're seeing everything from a completely new perspective but i'd love to know what you think about tarot you know we've been talking throughout this entire podcast about archetypes symbols energies and generally in humanity's attempt at understanding these very impossible things. We have recognized certain divisible forms. And I believe the tarot is kind of the ultimate condensation of the spiritual traditions of ancient times. The best look at reality that we have is a game. The tarot is a game. It's a deck of cards. It's a toy. And it provides, it's like the ultimate book. It's like the perfect book. Because every story can be told with it. It is, there's a, there's a story I tell now. Because I just recently heard that the best scary story, because it's a true one. So it's an alien experience. Or like, just a weird high strangeness thing. Blah, blah, blah. But it's about this clown. These two English children wandering in the countryside come across a clown. Blah, blah, blah. It's very odd. It introduces itself, and it says, Hello, I am all colors Sam. And they're like, are you a ghost? It says, not exactly, but in a funny way I am. And to me, that is a very good encapsulation of the spiritual, of, of the tarot, of God, you know, the technicolor dream coat. The rainbow. Um, all divinity appears with immense color and the colorful things. Jung talks about how in the past color was far rarer than it is now. Now everything is color because corporations and false inks and toxic you know, paints have become the, the norm. Everything is brightly colored. But in the past, it was very rare and it never lasted. You know, you might have colorful flowers, but they're going to die. That's why, you know, purple robes, because purple is such a rare color. The fact that we could get robes purple for royalty was immensely uh, important and beautiful. And the tarot at the time would have been one of the most colorful objects you'd own. Hmm. In Judaism, there is a prayer that is said every time you see a rainbow. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of prayers, but it does remind me of the what you said was 
astounding. The multitudes of God. I mean, there are layers. Everything that exists in the Bible or in the occult or archetypes is uh, it's multi-layered. There's a part of it that applies to you and your unconscious. And I mean, even the story of Jacob and Esau, like uh, initially I'm, I'm, I think of Esau as being the first structure, the first idea that comes to your head that maybe you're born with. And then perhaps Jacob is this new structure in your mind that comes about that wants to be heard and eventually is given God's gift is given God's uh, lineage, the, the, the power over the, over the lineage. But it isn't an easy battle to trade off God's will from Esau to Jacob. I just thought of that on the spot when you said that. So <laughs> I like um, the judges of Israel interest me a lot. And as archetypes of rulership and power. Like, Why is that? Oh, you know, because just symbolically, Israel is such a sensitive thing. It was like, it's something that really had to be struggled to exist, to be protected from these empires. And the judges, as the people, though flawed, that maintained its existence. And you think of Jephthah kills his daughter who sacrifices his daughter and you know my fate i love samson i love the story of samson and delilah but he's somebody who loses it all he loses everything and including his life to women to the pursuit of women um you know you have these these looks at how difficult it is to do god's will how impossible it is to to do to follow the vibe you know the, the the struggle. Hmm. There's the story of David, and that has this odd symbolism to it, where he is David is is a is a sheep herder when he's young, and so he's at the bottom of the pack. He's the youngest and the smallest of his of his siblings. Um, he's an entertainer, so he's like kind of a fool in a way. He takes over Goliath, so there's this flipping, and then. Um, Saul, his father-in-law, he marries Saul's daughter. His father-in-law hates him. And so he's trying to kill him. And David uh, runs away, um, eventually finds Saul in a cave where he's apparently going to the bathroom. That's the, some of the, the, the implication there. And he, he sneaks up behind him and cuts off a piece of his robe. And then later on he says, I've got your robe. Essentially, I could have killed you and I didn't. And Saul forgives him. Mm. So there's this flipping where... David starts off at the very bottom of the hierarchy in the beginning, and then at the end, he's king. And his son, Absalom, um, this story grips me, and I, I don't quite know why, but um, his son, Absalom, uh, David's one of David's other sons has slept with his half-sister, and Absalom takes it terribly because it's his full sister, and he goes on a crusade, and he says he doesn't forgive David, um, and eventually he decides that David is not a good ruler, and I think he sleeps with David's concubines, and then he decides to wage war on him. And Absalom is this beautiful man. He's the, he's the most beautiful, and I think he's David's favorite. He wages war on him, and David at the beginning says, 
don't kill my son, whatever you do. And what happens though is Absalom is chased into the woods with his with his uh, warriors and his beautiful long mane of hair gets caught up in the trees and he's his horse runs out from under him and he's, he's hanging in the trees and then people kill him. And David wins this war, this massive battle, and the first thing he says is, Oh, Absalom, I would have died for thee. And there's this really magical part of that because he's, in his version of the story, his stepfather, his father figure tries to kill him and he, he doesn't manage to. Instead, he does the righteous thing and becomes king. But this man who could have been king, his son, who should have been king, instead tries to kill his own father and ends up dead in the woods when he could have had everything. It goes that way. We never, it's like, uh, like the Godfather. It's like, if the son has it, his son won't. Or if your father doesn't, you might. You know, power, regardless of the past traditions of monarchy, it generally doesn't follow through bloodlines. It generally moves around. Did you ever hear the story of Ham? About uh, Noah and his sons? Yes, yes. He sees his father. About, uh, mm. Yes. Um, but, oh, sorry. you know, many... Okay, so Noah gets drunk one night and strips himself naked. And Ham, and who is one of his sons and his two other brothers... Ham sees him naked and wants to carry him back to his room, back to his tent. And the two other brothers refuse to look. They, they look, they go backwards to carry him back. And when Noah wakes up, he says, you know, I'm casting you out. You've, You've seen my nakedness. And he goes. Now, of course, this is, in fact, generally considered to be about rape. That Ham fucks his father. And this is why uh, Rambo, the poet, says, I'm one of the sons of Ham. Because he's a homosexual. Um, The idea... The son and the father. This is one of the other really important things to me about analyzing literature is that for every dynamic, for every type of familial relationship, there are so many infinite expressions of it, many of which are bad, a lot, maybe even the majority. It's harder to get good. It's harder to do good things. It's harder to have a good dynamic with anybody. Mm. I think for most people, their general inclination is to be mean and bad and to not care about other people. Um, Mm. It's a struggle to live well. One of my favorite lines from any movie is in the Rocky Horror Picture Show, and it's, it's not easy having a good time, and it's not. It's very hard to have a good time, to find people who will have a good time with you, and that's what the community is about. The community is about finding people who don't want to kill you, 
who generally don't want to kill you and not wanting to kill them too. And it's really like amazing that humanity has lasted this long and been able to grow as it has without killing each other more than we already have. We do it a lot. It's amazing that we're still here and I'm thankful for it. Mm. Me too. So we have about 15 minutes left. I'm wondering, can you read my tarot? Do you have a tarot card deck? I do. I'll grab okay. it. I want, if you read me, I will read you. I'm going to grab mine, too. I'm going to grab my cards. Okay. Actually, can we read tarot with your... tarot with the symbolism deck that you made? Sure. Cool. That would be great. I know. Sneak peek for everybody. I think only one card. Or no, a few cards because I've given them to people and they've posted them. Mm -hmm. Alright. Do you want to go first? What do you want to know? I want to help my YouTube channel grow. Okay. Is that too shallow of a, no. of a thing no. to read about? I ask shallow things constantly. Um, I especially am curious about like where to eat and who to see and such. Just little things. I'm just curious about like the vibe. Um, but I, I try not to ask too much in general. I like to read for others more than I like to read for myself. How to make the YouTube mm -hmm. channel grow. Okay. The card is equals. It's the equal sign. And it is two sticks. So some I, I had never, ever understood that the equal sign is literally two things of equal length. Um, it is not, it is, to me it was, when I, when I read equations, I always think of them as progressions. Like I thought they were like moving toward the solution, toward the thing that it is equal to, when it is in fact a symbol for two equal things. It's, a, it's, a, it's an ideogram. It is not merely a symbol. It is a picture of two sticks or lines of equivalent length. So for me to read it, I, I, this is honestly the first time I've read it to somebody outside of the people I've made it with, um, I would say it is about finding your equals. Uh, a lot of YouTube success is a community. It is about, and I think also if you are going to do interviews, you know, it's finding a, a match. A lot of interviewing is about reaching people where they are. Um, it's hard to interview. Interviewing is a very difficult thing. So if you can do it well, if you can match up, be equal, speak on the same plane, which it seems like you are quite good at because you you can interview a variety of people and do it well. So Thank you. that is the key. It's, it's a, a matter of reaching people on their level. 
That applies to the audience, too. Yes. Which is harder, I think, sometimes. Hmm. Is there only one card being drawn for this? Or is it like a like a tarot deck where you draw like five or something? I generally read single cards for tarot as well, at parties at least. Uh, it, it takes a, a specific question or money to get a full reading. Um, mm. But I could pull another card on something else if you want. Yeah, sure. Um, the question... Oh, uh, the question that comes to my mind... I actually don't think Judaism is a compatible thing with tarot. Perhaps I won't ask that question. Um, how about uh, my financial success? So how do I... You want your audience to know? Because if you make it, if it says you're going to be rich, they're not going to give you any money. And if it says you're going to be poor, they might not give you money in the, anyway because they they assume they're not going to be able to change it. It's a dangerous thing mm. to let other people know about something like that. That's a good point. Same with my relation. My my relationship is going really well, and I don't necessarily think I need a reading on it. Um, it's most questions are very dangerous. People don't realize they don't really want to know much. That's why I always ask, mm. "What do you want to know?" Most people don't want to know anything and shouldn't. Hmm. What can I do to help the world the most? It is a diamond. Ooh. And it's what's in the earth. It is a matter of looking at, you know, in a way, I guess it's kind of similar to what I do, where it's like unearthing, looking into the dark, looking into junk, finding the diamond in the rough, finding the good um, out of many bad things. It makes a lot of sense. Um, there is this issue that I've had in the past where I have every venture I've thought of doing or I've started doing, there's been some moral issue with it. Like for instance, importing a product, you know, it's like you have the carbon emissions and maybe it was made in China and all these different things. And I found that in searching for perfection, I was moral perfection. I was stopping any progress or growth. Like for instance, uh, on the podcast that I just did a couple of days ago, this is a real moral hitch for me. But I was, we were analyzing celebrity faces. This guy, Mike Mew, is yeah. all about facial structure and he believes that um, our faces are evolutionary, kind of evolutionarily meant to be chewing really hard food and we have to have good posture. And then modern society has fucked up our faces and given us all these health problems like sleep apnea. And so we analyzed all these celebrities and I thought, you know, I actually, once I, was editing the clips, not before then, but once I was editing the clips, I was like, actually, I'm talking about other people's health issues. This is a, this is a moral quandary. I, I don't feel completely right about this, but on the other hand, people are attracted to celebrities. They want to see, they want to know about celebrities. And then there's this massive upside where if people find out about this, they can correct their own health problems. And so there's this downside and then there's this massive potential upside. And I almost didn't publish the video, and I'm still not sure that I should have, to be honest. Um, 
Not everything is black and white, I suppose. I don't think artists and creators have much of a moral responsibility over what they create personally. But hmm. he also doesn't scare me because I've had a strong jaw my entire life. Even at my fattest, I had this, I had a, a good jaw. So yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm happy if people are insecure about theirs because they're, they're projecting good onto me. So whatever. Mm. You have strong <laughs> cheekbones too. That's important as well. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, I don't even know. What else does he think is important? It's because uh, uh, I know he, he's about the tongue on the roof of the mouth, right? That's his thing. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, yep, that's part of it. And chewing a lot of uh, hard foods like gum. Um, mm. Good posture, so standing up straight with your neck kind of back. Um, hate that. Hate pot. I like I like rolling into balls. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I, I naturally do that too. Um, and then closing your mouth. So not mouth breathing. That's a really important one because your nose actually filters a lot of um, air. I just learned how to do that like three years ago. I had horrible asthma my entire life. Terrible, terrible asthma. And then I learned to breathe through my nose and like change, again, cha totally changed my health. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. I, wow. I had terrible asthma too until I, st until I stopped drinking dairy eating any dairy products when i was about right. 10 see totally I, I i only drink milk i love milk. yeah i uh, love some dairy. people it's it's fine for some people but it wasn't for me and i now have this chronic distrust of doctors ever since then because the doctors were saying oh you should take steroids which is like mm. you know you should do all these crazy health procedures instead of like suggesting some sort of dietary change and um ever since then it's possible that i started my my nose was always clogged up but it's now that you said that, it's very possible that I just started breathing through my nose after that because I could. Mm -hmm. And perhaps that's why my, my asthma. Um, I, I was going from like multiple hospital visits a year to nothing. Like no issues. I mean, slight issues, but really not anything major. Totally similar. I used to have, I'd have a seasonal, seasonal bronch bronchitis. And I like didn't have a birthday my entire life until I was much older, until I, I began to get healthier because it always came in the winter. It always came right at my birthday. You know, there's a, I'm sure that there was a psychosomatic element there, but for a large, you know, honestly, and this might come as a hot take, but we have a lot of control over our health. We have a lot of control over our bodies, even if we don't know it. All right. I want my cards read now. Okay. Am I doing tarot? Give me a reading and about nothing, just general. Okay. Oh, I didn't know that was an option. Um, I actually don't, so I don't know how to interpret all the cards. I've been looking them up online um, so until this time. So what we should try, just don't consider what they actually mean. Just read the picture. All right. Um, so this is, I, I forgot this was, which deck this was. This is my father's old deck. Uh, that he's probably been using for about 20 years. So it's got a lot of latent energy into it. Um, are we doing upside-down cards as well? Up to you. He always does upside-down cards, so we're going to do that. Let's see if I can shuffle like him. It's a nice gift. You don't get a lot of 20-year-old tarot decks. <laughs> Not very well. Okay. All right, general reading. 
The first one is the upside down, the moon. So we have what looks like a coyote and a dog howling at the moon with a crayfish or a lobster coming up between the two. Oh, interesting. So you just did a video on the blue lobster and the blue lobster was a representation of the unconscious coming to the surface um, and being in the blue lobster meme, it was, and especially because you, you didn't, <laughs> the audio was so loud. You, you did not compress the audio for the blue lobster meme. And so you're, you're kind of listening in this unconscious state. And then all of a sudden the lobster comes up and reminds you what you are doing. It brings the, the unconscious to light. And these two dogs remind me of the, the story of Anansi, where there are two farmers uh, in, in Africa, and they're, they're good friends, and they're farming, and, and in between their farm is a, is a road. And Anansi, the spider god, the trickster, walks between them with a hat that is half white and half black. And once he passes one pharmacist to another, did you see the man in the black hat? And the other pharmacist it was a white hat. What are you talking about? And they get so angry over each other, knowing in their hearts that they are the correct one, that they take out knives and stab each other to death. And it seems like this is related, although the wolves don't seem to be fighting, but they are both howling at the moon on separate sides of the path. And as these two sides, perhaps these two parts of the inner world are separated, the unconscious comes up to unite them. <laughs> That's what I got. What do you think? And it's upside I down. I love that story. Time. I love that story. <laughs> I hadn't thought about the split of the dogs. I'd always thought about the top and bottom. I hadn't thought about the left and right. Oh, the top and bottom. There is a giant moon there that I did not. Yeah, I always think about the moon and the lobster. <laughs> In what way? That's the dynamic I tend to be interested in. Um, the influence, like the, the dark, the dark part, you know, the left and right are the most illuminated. It's hard to explain, but mm. we're just about at two hours. Mm -hmm. That was a good ending. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I had a very good time. I did too. This was a great interview. I was like, I'm, I wasn't sure if we'd have anything to talk about and we absolutely did. I'm so glad that you came on. I'm very thankful for it. Wonderful. Thank you for having me. All right. See you later, Chris. All right. Be well.